The problem of sin is complicated, and today we want to take a good hard look at it because we want to understand what it means to be people who are blameless in Jesus Christ. That is what you are, and you have the right with David in that great psalm, Psalm 18, or as we heard it from 2 Samuel 22, you have the right to say all the things he said about how he walked in his integrity, about how his enemies had no claim on him, about how he was righteous and loved by God for his righteousness sake, and about how, again, he is blameless before the Lord when compared to his enemies. You have the right to believe all those things are true about you, even though you also know from experience none of those things are true about you. You have the right to believe they're true anyway, because that is what it means to be made a Christian. You have been given a righteousness that is not your own. And you're actually free to use it. You never get to own it as if it comes from you. But you can believe that you have the right to walk blamelessly, to live with integrity, and to trust the Bible to be true enough that your public life cannot be accused of sin. Now, of course, I'm not talking about original sin. I'm not talking about the sins of the heart, the inward curved nature of man, how everything you do at every moment is selfish and therefore also corrupt and sinful, as the old carnal man is always with you. That's true. But I think maybe we've We've overshot that theology a bit to the level where we've forgotten that there's actually temporal consequences for sin and there are temporal rewards for not sinning. I mean, did you hear that? We're Lutherans. We believe we're saved by grace alone. But the fact is, if you kill somebody, it comes back at you. If you commit adultery, it comes back at you. If you steal, it comes back at you. And we live in a country where no one believes any of that. We live amongst a people who do not believe there is any consequences for shame, but rather the answer is to be proud of your shame. The Bible implies generally such civilizations burn themselves to the ground. It's happened over and over again. And if you're watching the news, you're like, oh my goodness, they're crazy. They're going to destroy it all. Well, I mean, yeah. It's happened before. It'll happen again. Just because they destroy their world up on top where they run everything doesn't mean everyone on the ground has to die. It does happen. It has happened in history. And if you want some real on-the-ground advice now, I'd say find a food source that isn't a supermarket. Get to know your local farmers just in case. That's just kind of good advice in general. Have some water. Have some extra food at home in general, some canned goods. That's good advice in general. You're supposed to do that anyway, right? Now in these times, I mean, sure, do that. But none of that matters nearly so much as knowing that your new man in Christ can face destruction around you everywhere and not blink an eye at it insofar as you remember that Christ is coming back. I've said it before. It's hard to get this discipline going, but it's a really valuable one once you can get it. It's like a snowball. You roll this thing a little bit for a week. It'll keep rolling on its own. When you are bothered, when you are anxious, when you don't know what to do, stop and look at the sky. And remember that Jesus is going to come back the same way he left, which means in the sky with clouds. Now, if there's no clouds, that doesn't mean he can't come back now. He'll make some clouds if he wants to. The point is, at any minute, no one knows the day or the hour. The Lord may roll it all up like a scroll and come back. So why not be the one watching? You might just be. 
And then once you've done that for five seconds or so, you'll realize that whatever bothered you so much isn't as big as you thought. It's just not as big. It's big, but it's not as big as your thought. It might be an emergency to everyone in the world, but it's not an emergency. It's an opportunity for you to yet again be a Christian, which means to see and feel with one body, one mind, and to have another spirit at work in you to make you do something different than you would naturally do in response. And that Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ comes to you strictly through the Bible, strictly through the words of the Scriptures, preferably out loud. You can study quietly, but out loud there's something amazing that happens. This is why I'm always encouraging you to pray the Psalms, like Psalm 18, because you get it three times. Every time you pray it out loud, you get it through your eyeballs, going into your brain. Your brain cycles it around and then shoves it back through your body into your lungs and mouth. So you get it there in its own kind of second formulation, in, out, and then it goes in your ears again, back into your brain, all like this. Three times the word of God inspiring you when you speak. Just speak the scriptures out loud. Now, if you're an unbeliever, this won't do you any good. If you don't believe Jesus is risen from the dead, it's just magic to you. But if you do believe Jesus is risen from the dead, it's not magic, it's prayer. It's prayer. It's prayer that God always answers. Even if you're just reading the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1, it's still prayer. When the Christian speaks the scriptures aloud, the whole creation stops to listen. The angels around you perk up. The demons flee. This is your strength and power. This is your identity. And again, uh, this is the wisdom by which you may know that you will stand confirmed in Jesus no matter what comes. Okay, so with all that as just kind of introduction here, today what we want to do is we're going to dance into the Pharisee and tax collector as our kind of like open the bubble a bit more. And then we're going to move into Psalm 18 with the structure of Psalm 18 as our, our kind of theme. We won't look at every verse, but we'll try to see the big structure. There's big chunks that go. And we're going to let that be a lesson in prayer. From, again, the Pharisee and tax collector showing us how much we need prayer. And then we're going to look at a little bit those three stories in 1 Corinthians 10. We'll kind of touch on those and then move back into Pharisee and tax collector on our way out the door. And hopefully I can do that all in under 35 minutes or so. Okay, so that's the trajectory we're on. We're starting then with Luke 18. And uh, I think there's two sides to this. And it's the, it's the first verse and last verse that we looked at that are the same idea that kind of puts everything together, okay? So Jesus tells this parable. Parable just means story. You know, he wrote a novel, but it was very short. Uh, he tells this story to some who it's important who he's talking to. They trust in themselves to be good enough. That's what righteous there means. It doesn't mean holy. It just means good enough. And that can mean a lot of different things, okay? Good enough for Jesus, good enough for your farm, good enough for your boss, they thought they were good enough, okay? And as a result of them believing sufficiency in myself, they then treated others as less, as not good enough. I'm pretty sure all of us, again, have this naturally within us as a problem. But the intention of Christianity would be that you would repent of this, that you would understand that your inbred belief that you're good enough is the counterpart to your inbred belief that you're not good enough. And that it's in your belief that you're good enough that you're always trying to prove that you are and failing and beating yourself up over the results. 
When if you would just believe that you're not good enough for you, but that Jesus sees. Now Jesus says, you are good enough for me. And more than that, my goodness is going to go into you and change you. So you're going to see you're good enough for you too. But that's not the kind of good enough we're talking about here at the first, right? We're talking about pride first, and we're talking about confidence second. Pride is in self. Confidence is in the one above you. It's in the one who sends you or one who stands behind you. You feast on him. He's the one who lives inside of you. That confidence is not the pride he's going to tell this story against. The Pharisee, the good man, the one you want your daughter to meet and marry. He's got money. He's got a house. He's got good friends. They got good parties and they're clean people. But no drugs, no violence. Good man. He comes into church, he prays, thank God I'm a good man. Not like that guy. Now, that's the part that I really want to dwell on that. I only go to a couple of stores. I'd like to go to more locally owned stores. I'm still trying, I'm new enough to try to figure out where can I buy this thing that's not at Home Depot. Now, Farm and Fleet, great, but uh, the local is, is the dream, right? But I go to a lot of big macro stores, and, and as a result, the ones I go to, like the three I go to, um, I get to, to know by sight the people who work there, some of them, uh, people who are there every day of their life, it would seem, kind of thing, right? And what I find most disturbing is how judgmental I can be of these people. I don't know them from anyone, and I'm standing in line to buy who knows what. And I look at the person, and instantly it's, oh, I'm so glad I'm not that person. Now, it doesn't have to be those words. It's just the emotion. You know? And it's a little bit of like a step back and recoil, or like, oh, yeah, that person works here. I mean, it's all evil. <laughs> and it comes out of me without me trying even a little tiny bit. It comes straight out of me. I look at the person as if they're not good enough for me. Now, the thing about Christianity is not to try to become a person that never finds that happening to you. You can't. You're going to do it. The question is, what do you do next when those thoughts show up? When you find that you're looking at somebody and thinking down at them, do you as a Christian repent? Meaning not go, oh, poor me, I'm so bad. No, no, no. Meaning say, that evil I see will not be what that person gets to see. Whatever I think about that person, it's staying inside my head, and I am turning my heart into something different for their sake. That's Christianity. That's self-control. That is what the Pharisee did not do. That is what you can do and will do because you are the beggar. Okay, now, I just pointed out, again, how you are a Pharisee out in the world. You find it in your heart all the time. But you're here at church this morning because you're not a Pharisee. You're here at this church particularly because you're not a Pharisee. Pharisees don't like this church. This church preaches that Jesus is the only way, that Jesus is completely sufficient, that we can let everything else, including old buildings, go away, and Jesus will still keep us alive as church. And people who don't like that message don't stay here. You might have noticed. They eventually grow weary of Jesus being enough, and they go searching for whatever it is they're looking for. You know, that's okay again. You're not here for that reason. You're here because you hear Jesus being praised in this place from the text of Scripture. And that means that as the beggar who comes in knowing you're not good enough, hearing me talk about how you judge people and bemoaning it in your own heart, you walk away justified. You walk away blameless. 
You walk away innocent, not because of what you've done, but because of who your king is. And we can make it tactile. I can tell you how it's because you eat him. And since you eat him and he's perfect, now you're perfect. I don't feel perfect. I know. So go out and face that you don't feel perfect with the truth that you are. It's all written in the words. And the more time you spend in the words, the more right words you will have to confront your heart with. If you're going to try to fight just by sitting still and staring at a wall, it's not going to work. But the fact, again, is that the power that is given to you as a beggar, who knows, I'm a sinner, that on my own I bring it all to ruin, that if I try to fix the problems I see, I make idols and worship them, and yet Jesus is my king and he will not let me fall. That alone today is always more than enough. Always more than enough. And tomorrow the mercy is new again. That is what I want you to have as a confidence that I tell you, praying the Psalms will give you. So as we move over to look at Psalm 18 or 2 Samuel chapter 22, I want to give you this pitch again for speaking the words of the Psalter aloud in your life every day, at least a little bit. These groups, the Sons of Solomon and the Daughters of Wisdom, are prayer disciplines, tools to make that easy. Hopefully soon we'll have a little booklet you can pick up on the way out to help explain what that all means. But while we're getting there, you can just open to Psalm 23 every day. Every Christian really, if I say should, does it sound moralistic? Does it make you feel guilty, right? The reason to open to Psalm 23 is not because if you don't, bad things happen. It's because when you do, good things happen. God isn't looking to punish you. He's just looking to give to you. And it's all just sitting there. And so when you can remember every day, as you start your day, end your day, middle of the day, it doesn't matter. The Lord Jesus Christ is your shepherd. And so you're never going to lack for what you need, that wherever you are, it is in fact in his sight, green green pastures and fresh waters. And you can know that's a sure thing because he has redeemed your soul into the righteous way for the sake of his holy name. With the result being that even though now you walk and live in this valley of the shadow of death, there is no evil for you actually to fear. Any rod or staff of punishment you find can become a comfort to you when you remember that he is preparing for you a table in the presence of your enemies on which your everlasting life is going to overflow. So you can know that goodness and mercy are following you all the days of your life, no matter where you go. But he's directing those steps forever and ever. I mean, is it bad to hear that in the morning? I don't think so. I consider it quite necessary. So the confidence to know that as the beggar, these Psalms now are mine. Because I know I'm not enough for Jesus and never shall be. I know I'm more than enough for this life in this Psalter, in these words. Jesus' words and Jesus' prayer. So as we look then at Psalm 22, the key to Psalms always is to remember they are Jesus' prayers. The New Testament is full of places where it says Jesus went away to a quiet place to pray. And everyone thinks about how they're going to go sit on a mountain and stare at the stars and dream about something and how that's like what he was doing, right? It was kind of a voodoo Hindu garbage. None of that. It wasn't going out and dreamily thinking about God. He went out and he recited the Psalter. I would contest to you, and I don't have this written, but just what they all did. They all did this. Now, if they were faithful, he said the whole Psalter every day. I almost guarantee you, he said the whole Psalter every day, not as a recitation, not as something he just had to do. It was what he thought. It was how he lived in his own mind and coming out of his own mouth. He'd walk away so he could remember who he is as we were all lying to him constantly about who he was. Now, that truth is yours now by virtue of your baptism into Christ. 
so that all these prayers that are his and his alone first now become yours by virtue of you being his too. That you have been pulled into him as a member of his body, member of the church, however you want to think of it, the host and armies of heaven. And so everything he says of himself is true of you by faith and for faith. All right, so let's look at the big sections here. He opens with a a broad thing, verses 3 and 4, about just God being the Savior, the Rock, the Deliverer. There's a lot of things about how if you call on God, then you will be saved from your enemies. There is a misguided teaching, I think, in uh, wide Christianity, which is that God lives inside of our songs, I've heard it said, you know, the Lord inhabits praise. And the misguided idea there would be that you can kind of find God in the music. That's a very dangerous idea. With all of that said, your weapon for fighting the devil is praise. It is song. It doesn't have to even be sung, it just has to be said. The words of truth are their own poetry. But if you sing them again, What have I taken from this? I mean, what I have done recently is I've tried to just replace some of the language in my life with words of song. So instead of awesome, I'm trying to say alleluia. Uh, Trying to put into my life the words of the Bible that are given for me to have a mind that's not like the pagan mind. All the words out in the world right now, because of media and TV and internet and everything, it's all doing constantly with multiple languages. All of our words are getting devalued a little bit at a time. They're getting more confusing. Babel is getting stronger. It's easier to talk past each other, that kind of thing. That's why attending to the definitions of the Bible, the way the Bible uses those words, can keep you sane, even while everybody else is going crazy with the words having to mean two and three contravening definitions. Think of tolerance. For example, if you're looking for an example. All right. So lifting your voice with words, singing the song of scripture, that's your weapon. That's your sword. You want to fight? You got you open that thing up and use it. He talks then in verses five through seven about the trouble. Remember, this is about his his running away from King Saul, how King Saul was trying to kill him. He had him as a servant, threw a spear at him, chased him out in the wilderness, took away his daughter after letting him marry her, all that stuff. How does he experience that? What did it feel like? The waves of death, the sorrows of Sheol, the snares of death. I think most of us can find somewhere in life where we found that emotion too, by the way. Somewhere where that overwhelm is just, it's just there. I just don't know, right? That one, right? He says, that's the kind of God he has. The one who answers those moments. The one who is there and sees him when he's in that kind of a need. That that God heard his voice and answered him. The language in verses 8 through 16 is all about, again, how God protected David from Saul. But it's poetic. So it sounds like, and it is, also about the exodus going past Sinai and through the Red Sea. So David applies the imagery of the clouds and deep darkness and lightning and parting of the waters to his own fleeing in the wilderness sleeping with his head on a rock while Saul's on the other side of the mountain with a whole troop of people chasing him. And he walks through all of that. Saul ends up killed in battle and David is king. Uh, He compares them to each other. But the key then is to see how he adopts the Old Testament pictures, Exodus, crossing the Red Sea, as his own today. 
Today, I live with the God who makes that happen. And he will make it happen for me according to his will. He doesn't need me to cross a river on dry ground. What he wants me to do is say alleluia one more time, right? Or maybe he is risen. Alleluia. Somebody testified. Oh, you got to give me better amens, though. If we're ever like at a pro-life march and I'm saying somebody testified, I mean, this is like the rally. This is where we get loud, right? So somebody testified. That's, that's a little better, a little better. All right, so when God comes down again, he looks like the God of the Old Testament doing glorious, mighty things. Did David actually see clouds and fire and thunder on the battlefield when he fought? Yeah, maybe, I don't know. It definitely happened at times in the history of Israel. But the key, he comes back to in verse 17, that he's being saved. David believes in a God who saves him temporally as well as eternally. That he can call on God and God will not bring upon him the evil that would come upon an evildoer. So he sent from above and took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy. That's Saul, but that's also the devil. Remember that too. So now, as we start to appropriate this for yourself, and we talk about this language of the enemy and having enemies, it is true as a Christian, you're going to have human enemies. You're going to have people who hate you just because you're a Christian. You're going to say what Christianity says, and they won't like it, or you'll know that, and so you won't talk, right? That means you're in the presence of an enemy if you're afraid to talk. But what I want you to get is this, that the real enemies that you have are not flesh and blood. Your real enemies are not humans. Your real enemies are demons, dark spirits, wicked powers, even bad ideas. And those are the enemies that Christ has absolutely already redeemed you from. So as you face what it means to have a human enemy, you can do so loving that enemy, knowing that the true devil has already been taken care of. And whoever is your human enemy is just a slave. Just a slave to the devil, just a tool. Uh, and that what they need is to be woken up from their sleepwalking. Right? What they need is to, is to be told he is risen. Hallelujah. So you have these enemies and God is going to save you from them. The devil, the world, and your flesh. They will confront you in your calamities, but Jesus is your support. Verse 20, he brought me out to a broad place. Now here's where this language gets righteous. He delivered me because he delighted in me. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. This is where we have trouble, right? For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. It sounds like everything Lutherans tell you is wrong. Like you're not allowed to believe that. And this is where you got to kind of ask a question about Lutheran preaching at a certain point. Now, you got, you got the Lutheran confessions. You got Lutheran dogma, that's the last 500 years, and you got current Lutheran preaching. And current Lutheran preaching looks at a psalm and says that's wrong. Well, that should tell you something about current Lutheran preaching, shouldn't it? That, uh, something's wrong with it if we think this is wrong. So, so what's right here? How can you say, as a Lutheran who believes Augsburg 4, if, if you know what that means, that you're justified by grace alone through faith, how can you say that God saved you because he liked you? That God rewards you for what you do? that according to your clean hands, he will pay you back. How can you say that? Again, remember, who's praying this? Somebody tell me, who's praying this? Jesus is praying this. So when you open your mouth and pray it, who's praying it? Jesus inside of you is praying it. Does he have the right to say that he's righteous? 
Yes. Does he have the right to say that he's blameless? Yes. Even from your mouth? Yes. That's the point. You're christened now. You're Christianed now. By the flesh? No. Against the flesh. As a weapon for your right and left hand, your mouth and your ears. Against the heart. As it tries to deceive and take from you the hope and the peace that God gives freely, even in the midst of darkness. Even in the midst of darkness. So you may pray these things because you're in Jesus. And then because you're in Jesus, know this too. What I said earlier about the Ten Commandments. You can always accuse your heart of wanting to break the Ten Commandments with temptation. No problem. You should be able to do that with every single one, every moment of the day. But your mouth and your hands are not allowed to break the Ten Commandments in your family or in your church. You're not supposed to. And when you do, repercussions will happen whether you get caught or not. If at the very least, your own heart again. When you do something evil and you don't want to get caught, how's your heart handle that, right? It's, it's really like an awesome feeling at that point, right? As you're trying to hide. Uh, no one will tell you, no, it's horrible. Right? Gonna, no, it's horrible. Right? So like the temporal reality of striving to keep the Ten Commandments is a real thing we Christians should be doing. Not because it saves us, but because it's good for us as a people together. It's the right way to live. It's how God made us to live. Huh? And so the Lord does reward humans according to what they do in this life. Does that mean God always brings all the consequences of this life back on you? No. He's so merciful, he doesn't do that for anybody. If he did that for anybody, we wouldn't be here. We'd all be burned already. So you're not gonna have all the consequences, but what you do know, again, if you put God to the test, 1 Corinthians 10 is coming, you say, well, God will let it be fine. He might just let you find out what it means, what you just did. So all this language about the righteousness you may claim, first, you may claim it in Jesus, and second, you can claim it as a Christian temporally. I mean, have any of you actually broken in and stolen anything this week? They might cheat on their wife this week. Now, porn might bring that up, but I mean, let's leave that aside. We got to deal with that someday, guys, but let's leave that aside for a second. Just straight up. Is anybody in a, an affair? I don't expect you to raise your hand, but like you're not, right? I hope not. So then you're in your integrity. You're trying to walk according to the word of God. No one can accuse you publicly of being a wicked, evil person unless they can, and that's what you want to stop doing. Right. That's what you want to stop doing. So if you actually are doing wrong things, this text will accuse you of that. But insofar as you want to be the Christian God made you to be, this text is there to tell you you are. That's how God sees it. And so again, exercise self-control and the temptation to be what you know is right, as opposed to what you feel compelled to be that you know is wrong. Verse 26 and following is what our official text was. Here is where you get this idea that it is in one way, take this very carefully, it is in one way what you believe that makes God who he is. Now, I'm not saying the actual God changes. The actual God is who he is. But for the human, your experience of God is largely based on what you think God is. And whatever you think God is, the actual God will tend to let that happen. With the merciful, he'll be merciful. With the blameless, he'll be blameless. With the devious, he'll be shrewd. It's, it, what it means, again, is that if you think God's going to judge you harshly, and you spend your whole life trying to hide from it, then that, that's probably what's going to happen, and you won't be able to hide because he's God. But if you believe God is everlasting mercy and love because he sent his only begotten son into the flesh to save us, well, then, again, that's who you got. And that's the real God, but we're talking about human experience. 
So to say that God traps sinners in their unbelief as false belief is very important. That the tool of the devil is trapped in his own head and a story he's telling himself is true. It's a story about who God is and what the universe is. And God lets it happen to the unbeliever. Now, what, what about salvation? What about his love for sinners? That's why the church is here. There's a strange mystery. We don't get to see how election's working out. What we know is there are unbelievers and there are believers. And here we are. And we keep going forward. The unbelievers can be saved by the gospel of Jesus. He is risen. Alleluia. Some will not be. Some will not be. And so those will be the ones who on judgment day say, Lord, I knew you were a harsh man, so I took your talent and I buried it in the sand. And he'll say, away from me. Take the talent, give it to the guy who has 10. Same idea there, same idea. So his eyes, verse 28 say, are trying to save the humble. Remember, that means the afflicted, the one who knows the struggle of this life, but that the haughty, they're going to be brought down. So again, this becomes about those who think too highly of themselves, like the Luke text had for us, right? The next section is going into just tons of praise, or what I would call in some ways the Old Testament style of prophetic preaching. So if you would have walked into Samuel's school of the prophets at Ramah, where he was teaching young men to go out and talk about God to other people, you would have heard stuff like this. You are my lamp, O Lord. The Lord shall enlighten my darkness. By my Lord, I can run against a troop. By God, I can leap over a wall. God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. Every one of those statements is like profound, deep, and you could spend a lot of time on. And you could just lie them on top of each other, right after each other. And that becomes sort of a song at that point. Um, I'm going to flip here to Psalm 146 for a moment and give you a, kind of another example of this. Um, uh, I, I do this one in the afternoons usually. I really love it. Uh, it, has, it talks about God, and it says um, all these things about him. Uh, God made heaven and earth. God keeps truth forever. God executes justice for the oppressed. God gives food to the hungry. God gives freedom to the prisoners. God opens the eyes of the blind. God raises those who are bowed down. God loves the righteous. God watches over the stranger. God relieves the fatherless and the widow. But the way of the wicked, God turns upside down. All those things, again, are like, oh, yeah, we all know that, right? But how often do you say it? So the prophetic confession, the spirit that's at work here, is when you take some time in your day just to say, God made the heavens. God made the earth. God made me and all that is here. God raised Jesus from the dead, and I am his child. It doesn't take a lot, but it does take some effort and some practice. Again, the Psalter is going to train you in this just how to talk about God and how good he is, right? Verse 36 and following, more about how good he is. He gives salvation. He makes the feet not to slip. He's able to fight his enemies and destroy them. And again, let that be about your demons. Let me tell you, he pursues your enemies to destroy them. That's a good news kind of thing. Destroyed them, wounded them. They could not rise. Think of the devil too. He talks about he put them under his feet. Think of the, the devil's face being crushed according to that great first prophecy of Genesis 3.1, where he bruises Christ's feet, but his head is, is crushed as the foot is nailed to the cross, right? That language as well is yours to adopt and to pray as your own. All right, verses 40 through 46 talks about how David not only was delivered from his enemies, but how he was able to care for those people who are under him. Uh, that 
And you know this, anytime you have anyone to care for, they're a bit of a challenge. They're never as easy as you would think it would be, whether it's your, your kids or the people you're over at work or what have you. And Moses found this out. You might remember, he said, how can I handle all these people? They're so stiff-necked, right? It, it became too much for him. Well, David here again gives you the prayer, which is Jesus' prayer, to know that God's enough for all that you have to do too. All the people you're supposed to be over, all the things you're supposed to do right, he is sufficient to deliver you from that. Huh? So that what you find is the world will serve you. And this is, I take this very carefully. I don't mean everyone's going to bow down and kiss your feet. No one's going to get, well, someone might give you money, but probably not very often. Uh, Rather, what's going to happen is as you learn to speak the truth with the common sense wisdom of the resurrection of Jesus, people will want to hear you talk more. People will want to hear you say it. Tell me more about this Jesus guy. And again, the prayers, the words, they're, they're here for you. And the only question is, will you put them in your heart or not? Well, you do the work week in and week out to, to put these in your heart. Yeah, uh, He gives you this great ending. The Lord lives, blessed be my rock. May the God of my salvation be exalted. Uh, his, he is the tower of salvation. He shows mercy to his anointed, to David, his descendants forever. The whole Psalter works like a lot of this does. What I've hoped to do this morning is give you kind of insight into some of those words. How do you pray them? Because Jesus prays them through you. That's how. The rest of the Old Testament works the same way and is also there to illuminate you with wisdom. That's what verse, or that's what 1 Corinthians was about this morning. I'm not going to go through that whole text, but I do want to talk about those three stories that he references as examples of idolatry that we as modern Christians, well, Christians, New Testament Christians, want to learn not to repeat that in the Old Testament, it happened in such and such a way. And we want to not do that now because we don't have to. So uh, the first of these examples happens at Mount Sinai. Moses is on the mountain. He's receiving the Ten Commandments. The finger of God is writing them on the Ten Commandments or on the stone tablets. Meanwhile, back at the camp, Moses, not Moses, I'm sorry, Aaron is watching a golden calf jump out of a pot and present itself as God. And he's so overwhelmed by this magical event that he says, behold, it's God. Everyone worship it. And when that happens, a vast number of people, 23,000 or so, decided it was time to have a great big group orgy. That is, have sex with each other and with each other and more all together right now with Mount Sinai right there, smoking fire and clouds, and this golden cow that Aaron actually made, but then says he didn't make later, okay? All that's happening. God says to Moses at the top, you know, here's the Ten Commandments. Hey, Moses, will you please go down there? I'm about to kill everybody. Go down and stop it, please. Moses goes down, he sees it, he breaks the Ten Commandments. You know that story, right? And then what happens next is this. Um, uh, Joshua, I believe, is the one who says, everyone who is for Yahweh, everyone who is for God, come with me. And he gets a bunch of men who rally to him. They have swords and they go out and they kill everybody who's having sex in the streets. You know, there weren't streets, there's the camp. But they, they, they just kill everybody who's doing these things. Um, that's the story. That's the story. And Paul says, don't be like that. <laughs> don't have God right in front of you telling you about how the world's going to be perfect and do the opposite thing before he's even done talking to you. <laughs> consider getting into what he says and believing it 
before you decide it's wrong. This is a really good thing for anyone who's like coming to that, that part of the Bible where you're like, oh, I don't know if I like that part. Oh, I don't know if I understand that, but I don't think that part seems right. Okay, try believing it's right anyway for like three months and see what happens. Because it's from God and it's guaranteed to be more right than you. And again, learn that here and see how it is idolatry to try to approach it any other way. And then also do not miss how sexual behavior that is unnatural, meaning outside of the marriage, the family, uh, is a common temptation tied to idolatry throughout history. Old worship, old pagan temples always had prostitutes. They were the center of prostitution. And so the idea of fertility and sex and the worship of the gods in nature, these go hand in hand. And if you look astutely, you can see it going on all around our culture right now. Porn on a computer screen is an idol. Uh, The computer screen might be an idol itself, but porn most definitely is an idol. Since I brought that up, let me just say, I'll tell you what, better to cut off a hand than to go into hell with two hands. If you got a problem with porn, the really easy answer is unplug it. Do it for like a month, then come talk to me. Seriously, if you're you're having that trouble, send me an email. Um, Unplug it first though. Stop thinking you're going to be strong enough. Just, Just turn the whole thing off and you'll be strong enough then. The Lord provides the way of escape, right? That's the end of this. The way of escape is to see the simple wisdom of self-controlling your body with what you know to be true rather than being led by the nose by what you feel. Second example, putting Christ to the test and being destroyed by serpents. I've talked about this one a lot of times. This is where uh, they don't like the quail. <laughs> Remember that? And God sends the, uh, these serpents among them, but they're also the angels. They're fiery angel serpent things. And the people are being bit. They're being poisoned. Uh, and God says, put a snake on a pole a brass one, lift it up, and anybody who looks at it, they just look at it, they're going to be healed immediately. And that's what happened. If you, if you heard him say, hey, look at this statue, and you looked, you were healed. If you heard him say, hey, look at this statue, and you didn't look, you died. Is that justification by works? No! It's the word of God enacting saving faith by declaring it to you. Huh? No one who looked at it did so because they were better or worse than anybody else. They just heard God when he spoke, and that's up to God. So again, when God speaks, don't put them to the test. Don't say, well, how much can we get away with? This is such a common like youth group question. I'm glad we don't have a youth group here. I think youth groups are problematic. They cause problems. Um, I used to be a youth pastor. I was heavily involved in the whole thing. Um, but one of the many kind of stories I could tell you is how often, uh, you know, annually, the youth would come up with a question like this. Pastor, how much is too much when it comes to the things we want to do with the opposite sex before marriage? Where's the line I'm not supposed to cross? It's the wrong question. I mean, let me rephrase it. How much sin can I do and not lose my faith? That's the question. And it's, it's just the wrong question. It's going the wrong way. It's putting God to the test. There is a good way to put God to the test. It is to believe his word and see if it's true. Trust him. Say, God, you say all these things are true. You say, I got daily bread the rest of my life. You say, my enemies cannot stand against me. You say, you have nothing to fear and there's no need for me to fear. So how about, Lord, you do those things for me. I'll read your word consistently and believe that's what's going to happen. Put God to the test that way. 
but not through the way where you try to see how much you cannot read it and still make it through at the end. How much of this life can I get and still get into heaven? Eye of the needle is pretty small. Third example, grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, there's a note in, I really have trouble figuring out what this is about. We got a note from my wife's Bible that says this is about uh, numbers, wherein you have the 12 spies being sent into Canaan to look at the land. They're, they haven't gone for 40 years in the wilderness yet. They just finished coming out of Egypt. They're going to go into the land that's flowing with milk and honey. There's grape bushels that are so big, they got to carry them on big racks. And 10 of the guys who come back say, and there's giants with big military might. Let's not do it. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, who will stick around for a long time, they say, what are you talking about? God's with us. Of course they're that big. Of course it's that great. Let's go take it. What happens next is... is Interesting. I'm not sure where the destroyer comes in yet. That's the part that I struggle with. What happens next is uh, the people decide right away, let's stone those 10 guys. Let's just kill them. Which is what God then, after a chapter of yelling at them about how they don't believe in him, he says, in fact, kill them. Have them killed. Uh, And then now y'all, because they're there and even did this at all, you have to go out for 40 years and wander. And none of you will enter in and taste the fruit of this land. Now, again, these things happened for us. Were there Christians who were there that day who didn't go, get to go into that land who we will be with in paradise? The answer is yes. Were there people who fell in the wilderness as unbelievers too? Yes, that as well. The whole time has always been the same game. God is sending his word out. He's gathering in a big net. He's pulling in and some get pulled all the way to resurrection and some decide they want to test God and walk away. And so again, these 10 destroyed by the destroyer, the point here is that really the devil has nothing. Even when the destroyer is unleashed from God to do things to this age, it's only because he's been unleashed by God to do it. The devil's entire rebellion is on a leash and doubly so since he's been pinned to the cross by Jesus. So what are these texts here for? Are they here for us to go, oh no, maybe Jesus is going to kick us out. That's not who he is. He doesn't drive you away now. Judgment day, if you come on judgment and say, say, Jesus, I changed my mind, I'm with you. Now he drives you out. But today he doesn't drive anybody out. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, upon you. It means wear something, work at something, and you will find rest for your soul. Again, it is the words themselves, in your mouth, in your heart, day by day, that are that rest. I can only say it over and over again. The Psalms are the clearest way to get directly into that. Those are our three stories from 1 Corinthians 10. Don't miss the fact in verse 11 that the end of the world has already happened. The end of the ages have come upon you, it says, and that we know because Jesus has come. And so all of us want to take heed lest we fall. When you come to church, you come as one who knows you don't belong here. You don't deserve to be here. You have no rights before God. And yet, he has sent out messengers into the fields, washed you with an invitation to a wedding banquet, and guaranteed you the right to enter into his presence. As you do, he cloaks you in new righteousness and affirms that you are his son, his heir, and that immortality is now yours. That done to you, undeservedly, you're sent back out not to believe you're a sinner. You are, you will, but you're not supposed to go out thinking, oh, this week I'm going to have all these problems. I got to watch out for them. Oh, I got to try to not do this. 
That's just what you're not anymore. You're sent out to be the one who walks in the integrity of a Christian, who knows that whatever failings you have, they're between you and God. You can keep them there most of the day. Jesus is going to take care of it at the end. But then the rest of the day, you got a bunch of other people that need you a lot more than they need you worried about your relationship with God. And so by having your relationship with God safe in Jesus and the words they are feeding you, you can see everybody else and actually be that good person you'd like to be in their eyes, in their eyes. Now, Judgment Day be taken care of. It's today's neighbor who needs you. So bringing that back then to close us here with the uh, Pharisee and the tax collector, that the one who exalts himself, the one who says, I'm good enough as me, God's going to show you you're not. Or he'll trap you in that pride straight into hell. Those are two options. But that the one who is afflicted, the one who recognizes his humiliation, the one who knows that no matter what I have done with these hands, it has always faded and turned to dust. No matter what I have done with this mouth, on its own it speaks bitterness and venom. And that's because this heart is deceptive to me first and then only through me to others. Because you know that about you, because I know that about me, we can also know that we shall be and are exalted in the risen man, Jesus Christ.